We live in polarizing times where we're asked to make a decision on just about everything. Whether or not we're going to wear Nike, Kate Spade, or even drink Bud Light. Why would you do that to yourself? That's a podcast for another day. But in the present, we're consistently asked to make decisions about these things because of the, quote, culture wars. While we have many who resist the culture wars and try to bring us back to a place of peace where we can all pretend as though the world around us doesn't exist and though evil is just merely a fabrication of our postmodern minds. There are others who recognize that the culture war actually serves a good purpose. Not all those people are in church, unfortunately. The church is not here to win. While we should have Christians who are standing up and defending what is right and standing up for what they believe in, many believe that the culture war is just a proxy for political argumentation that really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Whereas those of us who actually are paying attention know a little bit better that the culture war is actually a proxy for a much more important war. Not only is it a war of ideas, and ideas have consequences, but it's a war for spiritual truth, where we need to recognize, along with the rest of the world, that we're not too far removed from the bloodiest century in human history, and that most of that bloodshed came at the hands of a godless ideology known as communism. So while some pastors wish to sit on the fence, or even some pastors wish to back themselves up into a corner and insist that they are the moral betters because they will not fight the culture war. In fact, we're not in it to win it. Trans is in the title. Now, some of you will argue, Reed, if you're saying that Christians should be in charge of winning the culture war, then we've already been down that road. We see what happens when Christians go on crusades, and we've seen the Catholic Church in altar boys. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! I would just push back and say this. Whenever we see school shootings, whenever we see kids being frog-marched in to gender clinics around our nation... Uh, you can call me... Whenever we see millions of babies aborted each and every year, there is a worldview behind that as well, and we need to be honest about it. And that worldview is being logically consistent when it merely suggests that we're all stardust and we don't have really any intrinsic value, as Richard Dawkins suggests. The universe is created or exists just as you would expect it to if there was no God. That there's no good, no evil, just pitiless indifference. So when acts of evil are actually taking place and they're doing so within the context of Christianity, they are in violation to the tenets of Christianity. And are we talking about the Jesus that accepts everyone or the Jesus who doesn't believe that people should be able to love who they love? So it can be rightly said that those people, when they do them, are not Christians. However, when the atheist and when the secular humanist does an act of atrocity or does some act of violence, they are actually now operating within the confines of their philosophical worldview. Because if we can only expect pitiless indifference and no good or evil because there is no basis for moral value, well, then there is no right and wrong. There is no light and dark. And these things are just us dancing to our DNA. But since we know better, it might be important for us to reinvestigate not only what the Federalists believe, but more importantly, what our founding fathers actually believed and what this country was built upon. And in getting back to it, we'll find some sense of sanity, as we'll talk about in our stories today. 
by now you're familiar with the fact that Bud Light lost over $7 billion as a result of their partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, and it was money rightfully lost. Now, most of you have been asking the question, as I have, why in the world would Anheuser-Busch, Bud Light, do this to their brand? Why would they partner with Dylan Mulvaney when this is obviously so off-brand and so antithetical to the people who actually drink their beer? So Joe Rogan can go around drinking it all day long and won't change the fact that this was the dumbest branding move in the history of the world. Now, Rogan suggested on his podcast that this was done just simply to try to reach another group of people. Yeah, you want a beer? I'd take a light beer. Okay, let's yeah. get, get some Bud Lights. Let's uh, do this. Here's why it was really done. It was done because Anheuser-Busch was betting on the fact, and it's actually been a pretty good bet in the past, that conservatives would idly sit back with their thumbs in their rear and not pay attention to what is going on around them, and they would say, that's ridiculous, but never take any action. And that the people who will take action, that will go out because they're strongly motivated and activist, are those in the LGBTQ community. So if they can just simply pander to the left, they'll find that they lose nothing from the passive conservative, but they gain a lot from the active leftist. And like I said, that's a good bet because so often conservatives have been so fragile and so weak and so passive that they've just been railroaded by this kind of stuff in the past. But we're living in a different time today where we're finding that more and more conservatives are rising up and gaining courage to actually say, hey, there's a culture war going on and it needs to be one and we need to pay attention to it. Now, by the way, I might step back and just say, even if we don't come from the religious conservative Christian community, Maybe we can object to the fact that Dylan Mulvaney basically has, for the last 365 days, been going on a, a national mocking women tour where he suggests things like women know nothing about March Madness and that women just emotionally buy things. And I ordered dresses online that I couldn't afford. And that they're passive aggressive and they send emails yelling, yelling at people where they where they don't actually intend to send those emails. I wrote a scathing email that I did not send. So women are just this emotional basket cases that spend a lot of money, know nothing about sports, and they just love dresses. So he's gone on this tour to mock women, but also the Bud Light issue in particular is particularly egregious, and it has raised the ire of many on the cultural right because it's an, an implicit endorsement of mental illness. Gender dysphoria still exists, by the way, folks, and no matter how much we try to normalize this thing, in, in the history of brands in the past, this has never happened before. But that didn't stop the CEO over at uh, Anheuser-Busch from telling us this is why we did it in the first place. Quote, he said, we never intended to be a part of a discussion that divides people, CEO Brendan Whitworth said in a statement, quote, we are in the business of bringing people together over a beer, end quote. Well, I think it's funny, right? Because... The whole idea of them endorsing mental illness is important to note in light of what he just said, because it's funny what they don't endorse, because they didn't end endorse Jesus on the cross on Good Friday or the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, because they weren't actually trying to bring people together. They were preaching a message, and as a result of it, they got the repercussions of that message. And that message is one that the American people should have a problem with, because the more we normalize mental illness, the more the people who need help don't get it. 
So bringing people together with a beer happens about six beers in or so and happens without the help of Dylan Mulvaney. But since Bud Light's pee water, basically, may take a little bit more. But by the way, it doesn't happen with Dylan Mulvaney's help. He actually does the opposite of bringing people together as Bud Light had to learn the hard way. Because what Bud Light really wanted was influence. They wanted the power of culture. And that brings us to the understanding of why this is really a culture war issue, is because when one of the um, the the VP of marketing spoke out on this issue before any of this broke out into the fore, she was talking about how Bud Light needed to kind of revarnish its image and, and cater to uh, a new group of people so that it, the, the brand wasn't so fratty. So here's her talking about that. The clear job to do when yeah. I took over Bud Light. And it was, this brand is in decline. It's been in decline for a really long time. And if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, there will be no future for Bud Light. So I had this super clear mandate. It's like, mm -hmm. we need to evolve and elevate this incredibly iconic brand. And my, what I brought to that was a belief in okay, what, is, what, do, what does evolve and elevate mean? It means inclusivity. It means shifting the tone. It means having a campaign that's truly inclusive and feels lighter and brighter and different and appeals to women and to men. So I hope you caught it in the midst of her inane rambling that she is a byproduct of culture. So when we talk about the culture message that's trying to be sent through Bud Light's endorsement with Dylan Mulvaney, understand this, that the reason this individual even thought that this would be a good idea is because she herself is a byproduct of the power of culture. See, she has been indoctrinated into the system that is created in the academy of, of leftism and leftist thought and postmodern thought. And in that system, she doesn't actually see how what she was doing makes no logical, rational, fiscal sense. Hopefully, she realizes it now. But she she jumped into this endorsement deal with Dylan Mulvaney simply because she had been so echo-chambered in the academy that she couldn't understand why people wouldn't jump on board with this cultural message. All that to say this that she was indoctrinated because of the power of culture. And that shows you how powerful culture is, which I hope underscores the importance of Christians being involved in culture, that it, it underscores the importance of people of moral conscience stepping out and being involved in the culture war. While we have pastors who want to push us away from the culture war and tell us that if you push people away because you stand up for truth, they'll never want to listen to what you have to say about Jesus. Well, on the contrary, I suggest that if you don't have the truth in the first place, people have nothing to listen to and they won't respect you. All that is necessary for people to listen to your message is to know that they can respect you because you will tell them the truth. If you're willing to do that, then you can not only impact the individual, but perhaps impact the culture. Now, unfortunately, we're seeing some of this on the left in rare occasions, more so on the right, which is wild when that happens. Because if there's anybody that should be taking a stand, it's it's the conservative, especially the conservative Christian right. But just recently, John Stewart was on a broadcast where he was speaking to the Deputy Secretary of De Defense, Kathleen Hicks. And you almost have to see it to believe it. So here is John Stewart 
pushing back against the fiscal excesses of the Biden administration and the Department of Defense. So here's him speaking to Kathleen Hicks. All departments have to pass an audit. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's really only one that, that, yes. that hasn't. That would be ours. <laughs> yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Um, so why? Yeah, I, this, I, you and I talked about a little bit backstage about really, uh, you know, what most people would find very boring. But I think uh, we were excited to talk about uh, business systems. Mm -hmm. um, and DOD has, uh, doesn't have the kinds of backbone business systems that collect data in a way that can allow you to pass an audit. So that's a high priority for me. We've been making sure we're investing in those right. systems. But it's you know, probably, like, you, it's to probably hear that, like, a 10-year process. I understand, but you do realize, like, to an audience of Americans. Like, sure. I completely agree. crazy. I completely agree. <laughs> completely agree. Yeah. High priority. All right. A rare occasion of leftist enlightenment. I, I will grant you that. Now, before we get to the moral courage of him discussing this with, uh, with the deputy secretary, let me just suggest that, my God, yes, why can't the Department of Defense balance their budget? Why can't they tell us if what they're buying is actually getting to where, where it's supposed to go? She makes the argument, well, the Department of Defense is much bigger than most other organizations, and therefore there's so much more money to deal with, and it's a little bit harder to manage. But yes, we're pushing towards this kind of fiscal responsibility where we can actually show you where the money's going and what we're buying and yada, yada, yada. It's all a lie, and John Stewart isn't having it because the fact that you have more money means in any rational like adult's mind, that all that means is that you should therefore then be more strenuous with your budget. But she doesn't seem to want to want to believe that, and so she pushes back against it. Now, um, so let's go back to the moral courage of of John Stewart here, because it's a, it's a rare thing for John Stewart to actually take a thoughtful take on things. Now, I'll admit he's funny on rare occasions, when he goes on Colbert and suggests that uh, if you don't think the COVID lab was responsible for COVID, here, there's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. Whenever he does stuff like that, it is truly commendable. But let, let me remind you that this is the same guy that wants to tell you that drag queen story hour is not a threat to children, guns are, and wants to equate those two things. The government does have a responsibility uh -huh. in certain instances to What's protect children. What's the leading cause of death amongst children in this country? And I'm gonna give you a hint. It's not drag show readings to children. Correct, yes. So what is it? I'm presuming you're gonna say it's firearms. No, I'm not gonna say it like it's an opinion. That's what it is. So may I remind you, first of all, that the main killer of children is not guns. It's actually abortion. But of course, John Stewart lacks the moral courage to actually announce that f flat reality. Uh, but moreover, the problem with this argument is just simply that this is a false dichotomy and you see this all the time. Uh, it's what might be called ad hoc, where you have evidence in front of your face and you want to bring up trivialized evidence and interject it against that evidence because you don't actually want to want to deal with it. But so here's the evidence that he that he trivializes this issue with. So 
drag queens don't kill people, but that's not necessarily the argument. The argument is that it's harmful to kids on an emotional level to suggest that boys can be girls and girls can be boys. It's harmful to suggest, just to bring Dylan Mulvaney back into this thing, that a man should be endorsing and advocating the use of tampons since to date he has no place to put that except his mouth and some other unmentionable orifice that other men have. Um, Now, one would hope that he would use it for the mouth, but probably no such luck there. So suffice to say, to interject gun violence into a conversation about the the negative effects of drag queen story hour and uh, gender bending socially uh, se- sexual leftist ideology being forced down kids throat in the public school system to to suggest that uh, we need to you know we need we need to eliminate gun violence not be worried about drag queens okay so there's actually a difference there in in this way that the vast majority of constitutional gun holders are not going around killing people right uh, whenever this happens, typically it happens, by the way, mass shooters, if we're actually going to include mass shooting, like the things that took place in Chicago over the weekend, those mass shootings happen in contradiction to the law uh, very often. So you're going to have to actually have a very different conversation about laws and how they will actually protect people rather than what should be obvious at face value, which is there should be no conversation whatsoever about whether or not men dressing as women should be able to push their ideology down the throat of children. So so again, this is an ad hoc false equivalency here. So I only bring this up just to, to, to hopefully underscore the point that here we have a leftist standing up for fiscal responsibility in the government letting them actually be conservative with their spending and actually balancing their budget. And we have a leftist pushing back, maybe an old school liberal to be fair, pushing back against the a democratic administration official who refuses to tell us the obvious truth. So the point here at the end of the day is when we look at this character, John Stewart, and we see who he is, how can we let this leftist show us up anymore? How can we let him show us what moral courage looks like when over and over again he has shown us what it doesn't look like? Hopefully we can learn a lesson or two from the fact that he was willing to fearlessly stand up for truth without without regard to the repercussions to those in... Uh, in in his um, in his camp, or whether or not he'll win people with compassion. Hopefully, we understand that truth is a great way to win people at this point in time, especially if you're a Christian. Now, speaking of that, we need to go to do a little bit of Bible study with Democrats in our final segment today. Oh, God of pronouns. Last week, a clip of the Dalai Lama went viral where he asked a small boy to suck his tongue while people were laughing in the background at this scene. It didn't even sound like nervous laughter. However, most people with a conscience looked at it and found it incredibly shocking. So after my video came out condemning the action, there was an angry mob of liberals and leftists and the typical wannabe conservative who always likes to score points with the left by being on the wrong side of every issue. And these guys appeared to be defending this act. Many of the rebuttals came in the claim that the act was purely cultural and that Christians are one to talk anyway. I mean, look at the Catholic Church. Um, So in another episode of Missing the Point, we'll get to that uh, at a different time uh, in order to just try to 
sidestep what we're actually talking about. But but in other words, these attacks ranged these attacks ranged from uh, cries for nuance all the way to the completely and irrational and irrelevant. So in short, the detractors just said, hey, we need to add a little bit of nuance to what the holy leader did and give him a little bit of grace. So the problem with that claim is that their replies displayed as much nuance as it did grace and humility. Well, let's be honest, it lacked a bunch of accuracy as well. It's as though they should be working for Christianity today, in fact, that they lacked so much accuracy and desired so much to pander to the left. Well, I want to take a lighter tone today because I was actually mistaken about something in my original video. I do want to redouble down and get back to the main point. And the way I was wrong was in this way. The Dalai Lama asked the boy to suck his tongue, and he stuck it out and then pressed the boy's head against his. But I actually thought when I first saw the video, just because I was so shocked by it, that he actually allowed the boy to suck on his tongue, but he but he didn't. He pulled his tongue back before that happened, but the boy was going to do it because, of course, he's a small child. And obvious alert, children can't consent to almost anything because they're children, especially when adults are shoving things down their throat. One might think that's called grooming behavior. So... Uh, so I do want to take a lighter tone in that regard. I was wrong, and so it does change things slightly. But back to the main point. The guy still thought it would be a good joke, funny, to ask a little boy to suck his tongue. Now, the responses back sounded something like this. So it's just a cultural thing, right? So um, sticking out your tongue is something that's actually done by Tibetans, and it's a cultural way of kind of teasing and making a joke. Oh, you mean like it is in America? But how about sucking on someone's tongue? No, actually, commenters in the news media who had something to say about this. Folks in the Independent want to remind us that sticking out your tongue is traditionally a sign of respect or agreement and has also been used as a greeting in Tibetan culture, according to the Institute of East Asian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Far be it from anybody at the uh, University of California, Berkeley, to do anything radical and ridiculous. So notice here what they didn't say. They didn't say sucking someone's tongue, especially if you're a small boy, is a way of being playful and a way of greeting people. They just said sticking out your tongue. But the Dalai Lama said suck my tongue. So that isn't a greeting. So, so you mean that like sticking out your tongue is a playful way to greet somebody in the culture of Tibetan monks, just like in America? Which brings us to the next point. Is it the, All of the talk here was around this idea that, oh, this is just a cultural misunderstanding and you snowflake uh, Republicans and conservatives and Christians, you're trying to interject your social mores upon the, uh, the, the, the culture of East Asians and and, and that's why you think this act that was totally harmless is in some way sexual, because everything is sexual to you Puritans. Um, even to East Tibetans, or sorry, to East Asian Tibetan monks, sucking on your tongue is something that's sexual in nature. This idea that we can say the word cultural and just dismiss something is really why I wanted to bring this up in this segment today, because we underestimate the power of culture. The reality is, is that culture is, yes, a subjective means of communication. It tries to communicate to people using the language of that people that they understand. So yes, by nature, culture is subjective. But you see, culture 
at its best, and what it's really intended to do is to subjectively communicate something that is objective. We hear this all the time with uh, the wearing of dresses. When Phil Vischer just came out and tried to rebuke Dennis Prager for saying that uh, men don't wear dresses, uh, and Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, came out and said, oh, there's so many rules to try to obey in your religion, which some might suggest is anti-Semitic. But but the idea there is that, hey, you know, other cultures wear dresses like African men in the bush. They they wear what might be considered dresses to those of you who are in the West. You know, are they doing that which pertains to a woman? Are they being feminized by the culture or is it just a different culture? Well, here's, here's the reality. We don't live in Africa. And even in Tibet, tongue-sucking is actually not something that's commonly done except in a sexual way. And when we talk about, like, wearing dresses in, in America and how in other cultures it's not such a big deal, why are we making it a big deal here? Because we understand the implicit message that's trying to be sent. Again, culture is a nonverbal sometimes or even verbal ways of communicating with other people. And the thing that is trying to be communicated needs to be investigated. So when a man in America that doesn't live in Africa, since we're coming back to reality and actually talking about the subject here, when a man wears a dress, he's actually subtly trying to communicate something. And it may be something in the realm of, well, men and women aren't different. They're basically all the same. Or men can wear dresses because masculinity is just a social construct and masculinity can be whatever you want it to be. So in other words, they're trying to implicitly communicate some kind of postmodern nonsense to each and every one of us. And for those of us who actually have an operating prefrontal cortex, we don't want to believe that nonsense. Not to mention, it isn't true, which is what the real point is at the end of the day. Culture subjectively communicates objective truths. And when it doesn't, we have to ask ourselves why. When a man reaches out his hand to shake another man's hand, he is trying to communicate respect. When a man asks a little boy to suck his tongue, you should ask yourself, what's he trying to communicate there? And I would think that that question is absolutely in bounds. But beyond all of that, it shows us that cultural ideas and cultural norms are incredibly important because they can protect a little boy from being violated and they can issue forth a normative action. Now, in society today, where the postmodern woke left wants to tell us that there is no such thing as normative, we're brought back to the understanding that that kind of nonsense destroys the nuclear family, destroys morality, and even destroys the physical body of minors. There are implications to culture, which is why culture matters, which is why we need those who understand their moral right and their moral obligation to stand up courageously in the culture war. It's an acknowledgement when we pay attention that culture matters and that culture is powerful. And more importantly, it may be an implicit acknowledgement that your courage is actually required at this time. Now, many of you watching this today will still try to excuse away your lack of commitment to engaging in the culture war, and you'll try to say something like, oh, uh, you, you, you culture war Christians, you, you obligate yourself to outrage about everything, and you can't be outraged about everything. Maybe this is a good analogy. You know, uh, you, you want to cancel Disney today and Bud Light tomorrow. Are you going to go around canceling everything? 
Well, the answer to that is probably no, but I don't think that's an honest question. The question is, is what are you going to stand for? And that really matters. And culture matters. I hope you understand that cultural norms exist and they create. See, that's the important thing to understand about culture, that culture has the power to create. It has the power to create a consciousness in the mind of people where tongue-sucking by children can actually be permissible. Or it can say, no, it's not permissible, and lead people to a different conclusion. All of that, in a nutshell, is to illustrate the power of culture and why it matters for Christians to engage in the culture war. So your voice matters, and infinitely more as the culture swings radically to the left. And it makes me wonder, how much further left will it have to swing before you recognize that the world that's being created is not the one that you want your kids to grow up in, and perhaps maybe not even the one that you want to grow up in. So if you recognize that the world that's been created is not one that you not only don't recognize, but is also one that you don't want to live in, then I suggest you do something about it. And I'd love to hear what you're going to do about it down in the comment section below. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and most importantly, go with God.